Hi there, it's Bean. Welcome to an all-new Great Moments in Weed History. In this Weeds episode, my guest is Ellen Comp, Deputy Director of California Normal, author of the book Token Women, A 4,000-Year Herstory. Yep, you heard a pun in there. And Ellen is a truly tireless cannabis activist since the early 1990s. This special live recording of the podcast took place at a conference slash campout called Meadowlands up in California's Emerald Triangle. I want to say a big thank you to everyone at Meadow for putting on an event that truly embodies the culture of cannabis while also giving people a beautiful place to be in deep communication with each other during what's, let's face it, a very difficult time for the legal industry, particularly difficult for those of you out there doing it for the right reasons. That's why it was so fitting to have Ellen as my guest. As a defender of this plant and those who consume it, she has worked for decades to stop cannabis arrests and to make sure those who need the plant medicinally have safe, legal access. Her story of being green-pilled came when she read the book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, Saw the Light, and then sought out that book's author. That is indeed how she began working side-by-side with Jack Herrer, Rhymes with Terror, to educate people about hemp, which, for Ellen, was the start of what she described as a lifetime appointment as a cannabis activist. You can hear a lot more about Jack Herrer in our episode called Jack Herrer Green-Pilled the World. Just look in the great moments in weed history archives. Spoiler alert on that one. He was, in fact, a lot more than that guy that they named that strain after. Also, I want to give a quick plug to Box Brown and his comic Legalization Nation, which does an incredible job of documenting the dirty world of corporate cannabis in real time. He's got a Kickstarter going right now to make a hardcover book out of the last three years of his comic journalism strip, and I highly recommend checking it out. And if you like what you see, please join in that effort. You can go to the show notes in this episode for that Kickstarter link or just Google Kickstarter and Legalization Nation. You can also support this very podcast, the one you're listening to right now by visiting Great Moments in Weed history.com and signing up for our patreon you can do that for as little as a dollar a month you'll get the video version of the podcast you can put five on it and for a little more you can as always get a signed copy of my book how to smoke pot properly you may be smoking pot improperly as we speak and once again you can support this podcast and uh (laughs) Help a stoner out by going to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. If you value this show, please throw in on this shit. Now, on to this weed special live episode featuring Ellen Kopp. But I am, of course, keeping an eye out for those of you who are thinking to yourselves, wait a minute. I am not nearly as lit as I would like to be. I may not even be lit in the least at this moment in time. Well, dear listeners, the remedy, as always, is to just chill and hit 
pause and you can use that time to roll yourself a joint or to split a blunt or to pack a bong or to endabulate a dab or to eat all the edibles you think you can handle but not one edible more. I am actually uh, recording this intro at a beautiful cannabis farm up in the Humboldt Hills with my friends at High Minded Humboldt so I can assure you that I am adequately lit and so as always whenever you are ready to hit unpause we'll all be ready to share with you in another great moment in weed history. recorded version of the podcast where I advise listeners, if you are not quite as lit as you would like to be, you can hit pause and use that time to roll up a joint or to split a blunt or to pack a bong or to endabulate a dab right now and uh, picture yourself uh, surrounded by beautiful redwoods and looking out at a community of people who are ride or die for this plant. Uh, and you'll be right there with us. And Ellen, my first question for you, as somebody who has been working on this issue and loving this plant for a long time, when and how did you get green-pilled? How did you become a weed activist? Just so you understand a little about the set and setting here, like who I was and what the time was. You know, I was born in Pennsylvania in 1957, and I came of age during the late 60s which I was a little too young to really be involved in the hippie movement and all of the protests and things at the time. But it was a very political time. You know, the Vietnam War was every night on the television. The draft was on. They were about to pull my older brother's draft number. And I became an anti-war activist at the age of 13. The other thing I did was a uh, campaigned against a curfew in my hometown for teenagers. So I guess I came to, you know, personal freedom and political activism around the same time. But by the time I graduated college and moved out to California, Ronald Reagan had taken office. So I was looking around for something to do. And I sort of called out to the universe for guidance. And the next thing you knew, I met this guy. And he told me he was a hemp activist. And all I knew and all anyone knew at the time was hemp was rope and hemp was dope. That's all that was known about the plant. And he hands me, uh, on our first date, which was a Jerry Brown for president benefit at Talia Shire's house in the Hollywood Hills. After that, he hands me The Emperor Wears No Clothes, Jack Harris book. And I stayed up all night reading it because I kept saying, you don't mean cannabis hemp, the very same hemp I smoked in college that I always kind of thought was a good thing, but... Oh, yeah. And um, I stayed up all night reading it and verifying it in like dictionaries and encyclopedias because this is pre-internet kids. And the next day, I went out with him and started handing out flyers for a hemp rally that he was having the following week at the L.A. Federal Building. How, how many people familiar with the work, the name Jack Herrer? 
and how many people familiar that that is a book and a person <laughs> and not just <laughs> I'll tell a very quick story I was in Spain about 15 years ago they were just really coming above ground with weed cultivation and every grower we were shooting a how to grow weed DVD and every grower was saying what, what do you grow jacarere jacarere Finally, I said, you know, sabes, uh, Jacarera no es solamente una planta, es una persona también. Like, do you know that Jack Herer isn't just a plant, but Jack Herer is a man, an author? And, and then one grower looks at me and he goes, un hombre magnifico, no? Like, who is this person? So uh, many, many people were brought into the world of activism. Mm -hmm. Ellen, maybe you can talk about that world, how you were drawn into it, and, and, and what you saw working uh, beside uh, Jack Herrer in those days. Yeah, well, this led up to, we had our first hemp rally on the 200th anniversary of the Bill of Rights, which was December 15th, 1991, a great moment in hemp history for me. It was like the 60s come alive, you know, it was great music, it was great people. It was great speakers. There was a biochemist from UCLA that spoke about the nutritional value of hemp seed. And Jack spoke. And if you haven't heard Jack, I mean, he had this booming voice. You know, he really commanded the stage. That book didn't become, you know, compared to Rachel Carson's The Silent Spring or Upton Sinclair's The Jungle because it just sat there. He went around and stumped and sold that book and sold the concept of it. I mean, we had to educate people totally grassroots. You couldn't even get the word hemp in the newspaper. They would always change it to marijuana. So we had to educate people one by one. Jack had a booth at uh, Venice Beach in the free speech zone and people would come by and we'd give them like those hemp seeds. Remember those like bird seeds, the, the hulled hemp seeds, you know, to eat and show them, you know, we little balls of twine and, you know, like maybe a shirt that someone was importing from China. I mean, there was, there was no hemp industry. We were like pulling it back from the brink of oblivion. Jack had unearthed all kinds of things in the book about how, you know, paper from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, that it makes four times as much paper as trees and all kinds of useful products to it. And you would watch people, Jack called it the mind fuck. You would watch the little light bulbs go over people's head like, hemp is a good thing. And, you know, we're so disconnected from nature that I used to say I could, if I had a joint for every person who asked me if they could smoke my jacket, I could have the party of the century. Or people would say, how do you make a shirt out of bud? You know, I'm like, no, it's the stock of the plant. It grows, you know, it doesn't just come in a little package, you know, like chicken in your grocery store or something. You know, it's a living thing. And this gets to a really important point when we talk about cannabis history and cannabis is a word that does include both uh, the lovely flowers that I hope you gift me and Ellen after this show and uh, the industrial uses. That's all cannabis. That's all one plant. And Cannabis history is about 10,000 years old, at least the interaction between humans and cannabis. And so it's very easy to get lost in our current moment. It's very easy, those of us who have lived and suffered through the Prohibition era and are still in many places in this country and around the world living and suffering through that Prohibition moment, to think that that is the breath of history, and it is a blip in our 10,000-year interaction with this plant. And we are holding up this culture in a tough time. 
keeping this torch going, if that's the best we're able to do in this moment, is vitally important because if the prohibitionists had won, not only wouldn't we be sitting here uh, having this lovely experience, but we would be uh, where we were a few decades ago when Ellen began her work on this issue, uh, subject to arrest at any moment, whether you're using it to treat cancer or to get ripped. And Ellen, um, what, what were some great moments that made you realize, like, I made the right decision to back this plant at a time when people would really look down on you if they weren't trying to arrest you? Or on the flip side, they'd say, and tell me how many times you've heard this one, Ellen, gosh, you're right, I agree with you, but that's never gonna happen. How many times did you hear that? Well, again, I could have the party of the century if I had a joint for every time. But, you know, it's funny because when I put my foot on this path, and this was so true at the time of everyone you met in the hemp movement, we all had a story. We all were almost called to it, it felt like. And so many things opened up for me at that time. I mean, you know, I just chucked my job, you know, and somehow I'm here today to still tell the story. Oh, gosh. A, a million little things. Like... Um, being in Colorado with Jack, we were working on the hemp initiative there in 1992 and Al Gore was running for president and, um, he was asked on the campaign trail about hemp. And of course he was a big environmentalist and everything. And again, we're trying to get the word hemp even in the newspaper, right? So according to the New York times, his response was vaguely meaningless and meaninglessly vague and managed to somehow convey that maybe he was against hemp, you know? So we were sitting around with Jack and trying to, throwing out ideas like, well, how, let's respond. Let's send out a press release. Let's respond to this. Finally, I, I stopped everyone. I had been taking notes and I said, well, how about we say this? You know, I kind of wrote the press release and, and, and uh, Jack grabbed my arm and said, you can write. And I had been telling him this, you know, because me, meanwhile, I'm standing in front of a grocery store all day, every day, trying to get signatures, you know. It's like, it's like uh, panhandling, you know, sign the petition, sign the petition. You know, it's the foot soldiering of activism, and I was happy to do it, but I wanted to maybe use some of my other skills, you know. So that's how I got invited to edit the ninth edition of The Emperor Wears No Clothes. And that was a wonderful experience, because I got to work very closely with Jack and watch him, like, weigh every word for its veracity and we put in some new information out of France and Germany because it was now becoming an international movement and he would sit there while we were working and, and say you know we could everything here could be made out of hemp the computer modules the rugs the the you know the drapes you know we would drive around and everywhere he would say we could have hemp fields here you know he had such a vision Ellen at what point did you join up with California Normal and at what point did medical cannabis become a focus of the community and, and your activism? So I got involved in 1991, and then I was elected to the board of directors of California Normal shortly after that, which I didn't know was going to be a lifetime appointment. But <laughs> Hey, we're still, we're still here, Alan. You know, <laughs> there's still time to walk away. <laughs> yeah. um, so I started volunteering for LA Normal and just doing anything I could. The 
medical marijuana movement started around this time, very much born of the AIDS activism movement. AIDS activists were um, advocating for all of their medicines, uh, including cannabis. And Dennis Perone had uh, passed a measure in San Francisco to legalize medical marijuana. And this was very groundbreaking. Santa Cruz followed the next year. And then there was an effort to start it at the state level. I mean, personally, for me, what what brought me to medical is people started coming up to my hemp information tables and like in wheelchairs or with cancer asking for medicine. And I thought, you know, I'd I'd take a couple years off from the greater struggle and work on this like side issue, you know, I mean, because it was urgent, people needed it right then, you know, people were dying of AIDS, literally starving to death. This helped, you know, keep them alive. And it was the thing to do. Um, of course, we were accused later of just wanting to do it because it was the nose under the tent and for legalization. But for myself, it was not that. I, would, it was, I genuinely wanted to help the people who needed it for medicine first. You know, we did have success then, of course, with Prop 215. Um, no one thought that was going to pass. Uh, Barry McCaffrey, then the drug czar, was calling it Cheech and Chong medicine. No one knew what to do with it. The federal government immediately uh, threatened to take away doctors' uh, licenses to prescribe controlled substances if they recommended medical marijuana. That had to go to court and had to win the First Amendment right for doctors to talk to their patients about marijuana. Something I wanted to mention Because another thing that was the impetus for it, you know, the IND federal program had started, Investigational New Drug, because Robert Randall, who was a glaucoma glaucoma sufferer, had sued the federal government for his medicine, and their answer was to start this program where they gave him, and there's still a few people in this program, where they send a tin of 300 joints to people as, as supposedly as a research program, but just to, you know, provide them with that medicine. Well, in 1992, I believe it was, uh, the Bush administration, the first, closed that program to any new applicants. And this is just after a lot of AIDS patients had applied to the program with the assistance of Bob Randall and Alice O'Leary and others. And the, you know, scuttlebutt, inside scuttlebutt was, well, they didn't want to be seen as giving pot to queers. So this was just horrible, (laughs) you know, that our federal government would do that when it was known and proven it was saving lives. But that actually, in the end, gave us much more impetus to pass Prop 215 because it was the only way that people were going to be able to get it. Yeah, just just to underline what Ellen is saying, they closed this program because they knew it was working. And it was demonstrably, provably working. And so uh, Robert Randall, and we have a whole episode of Great Moments in Weed History where I spoke with his, he has since passed, I spoke with his widow and his partner and all of this activism. He petitioned the government relentlessly until they let him use cannabis to treat his condition, but then he never stopped trying to expand the number of people. And that is really what we are about as a community. They kicked our doors down. They shot our dogs. They took our kids away. They chopped down our plants. They put us in cages. They have never acknowledged the damage that they did to human people. They just want to move on to collecting taxes. But they're the same fucking mindset. So we just have to be, we have to be polite and nice and work with the system, if we want to be a part of the system, but we can't be naive about 
why we're in the situation we're in now. And we can't put it on ourselves. Oh, if only we had written the initiative a little better. Sure. Well, if only maybe they weren't who they are. And, and, and that will really help us stay together as a community. And I think one of the really amazing examples of this, and Ellen, I know you were a part of this, is how uh, the community, specifically up in Humboldt, that was most targeted uh, by every level of our government's enforcement agencies for the crime of growing just unbelievably beautiful weed and sharing it with people around the country, um, how they organized, self-organized to fight back up against that. And Ellen, what, what did you see in your time in Humboldt and how were you a part of that? Yeah, well, I went to Humboldt somewhere around the turn of the millennium and uh, it was still going on, the helicopter raids on the, the cannabis you know, farms up there which had started and Normal had been involved in some kind of lawsuit that was supposed to back them off somewhat. But they they found ways to continue to terrorize people. And, you know, a whole generation, you know, you talk to the kids who grew up, you know, having to live with that kind of fear. <sighs> anyway, so I went up to Humboldt. I was working for the Hemp Connection store with a great lady named Marie Mills who started that store. And she also was part of this organization, the Civil Liberties Monitoring Project, which part of my job at that place was to take phone calls, reports of where the helicopters were that day, call them into the KMUD radio station that the community had started, and then they would put it out on the news, on the airwaves. <laughs> In fact, it was Estelle Fennell who later became a supervisor there who was the news director there, and that's who I would usually call. And we did other things there. We had um, events. We worked on voting rights. We worked We worked on other things. But this came about from a group called COG, the Citizens Observation Group, that was a sister organization that used to go out with their T-shirts and, like, monitor. Like, just when they heard that it was happening, they would just show up and, you know, to, to witness it, to, to watch it. And then, then they were able to get enough, um, you know, information or, you know, data to file this this lawsuit uh, in fact, I think they even landed like on a, um, a monastery's property and I mean, all kinds of stuff. And yes, dogs being shot, some some man got shot in the back and killed over all of this. I mean, this was, these people were radical back to the landers. You know, they came, came to Humboldt to grow uh, their own crops and grow their own marijuana. And they, this was at the time when Sense Amelia was just becoming a thing, you know, and, you know, you ask them, like, where did you get this strain? Oh, I smuggled it back in the hem of my jeans from Thailand in 1972, you know? And and then it was all, like, acclimated there and, like, crossed and everything. And this is part of the tragedy now is that we're losing a lot of that land race. We're losing a lot of that genetics because people are, you know, giving up on continuing to grow because, you know, the the profit's gone out of it, the regulations, the unfair, you know, water regulations and all kinds of things that were were subjected to um, have made it almost impossible for so many people, you know, who want to get licensed. I, I never anticipated that it was going to be that expensive to get licensed. I mean, the licensing fees themselves are not extreme, but then when you add in all the CEQA stuff, the water stuff, you know, the planning stuff, it, it, it just becomes unworkable for most people. I, I had thought the micro business license was going to work. I, I envisioned like, you know, 
the Emerald Triangle would be like the Napa Valley of hemp. You know, people would be coming up and doing tastings and seeing the farm. And that, a little of that is starting to happen. How many people saw or heard about Murder Mountain? Murder Mountain, you're gonna die if you cross through the Redwoods. That's what happens yeah, when I we think. let these outside entities tell our stories for us. My experience of Humboldt was nothing like like Murder Mountain. It was a wonderful community of creative, wonderful people. They not only created a radio station, they created a community center that had wonderful arts programming, the uh, schools, medical facilities. You know, that's how I got medical care, you know, for the first time in forever. The uh, agricultural workers, which I became one because that's what you had to do up there, um, were from all over the world. It was like, uh, like I don't know, y- you hear now about the egregious examples of human trafficking and people forced into and all of that stuff. I, I never saw anything like that. And uh, it's, it's, real, it's a real shame because um, people think, because it's illegal, then only criminals are going to do it. But really, the, this was a whole different ilk. It wasn't. It wasn't people that what, even money wasn't even the main motivation for these people. It was a lifestyle. It was a a, a protest. It was a yeah. And and they were right about pot. That pot was a beautiful thing to bring to the world, and remains so. And you know, if we can get it away from the constraints of this horrible overregulation and taxation, you know, it'll, it'll be that again. <laughs> Absolutely. And then, uh, Ellen, I also want to talk a bit about your book. And I will say again, I love a weed pun. Token Women, a 4,000-year history. What are some of the stories as you looked at cannabis history through that specific lens of a herstory um, that really stick out to you that you think impact people when they learn about them? Well, I'm just busy uncovering that now. Can I, can I give you a little background? Yeah, please. <laughs> so this came to me through Jack's book, um, you know, because... Jack was very much about, you know, if we just educate people, they'll vote with us and we'll change things. It's all about the education for him and for me, too. And there's a section of his book that's about famous people who have used marijuana, like Louis Armstrong and stuff like that. And I found that when I when I showed people that part of the book or talked to them about that, more almost more than anything else, that's what really turned their mind around. It's like, well, wait, I thought it was terrible, but I love Louis Armstrong and he did it and, you know. I started a website called veryimportantpotheads.com because I love puns (laughs) and started reading biographies and autobiographies. And this is where I, you know, like Mark Twain, I had heard, you know, had done it. And yes, that a great moment in history was his stone stroll in September of 1865, where he was spotted stoned walking down the street of San Francisco and had uh, had encounters with Fitzhugh Ludlow, who had written The Hashish Eater, which was a very influential book. And then right after that, for some reason, s- turned from straight journalism to comedic writing with The Jumping Frog of Calaveras County. And it's like, hmm, boy, that was a really great moment if it turned, uh, you know, Mark Twain into what he is today. As I'm doing this research, of course, I was particularly interested whenever it was a woman. So like Louisa May Alcott, as you mentioned, and that came to me through a really wonderful book called Shaman Woman, Mainline Lady, or in later editions, Sisters of the Extreme by Michael Horowitz and Cindy Palmer, where they published accounts by famous women of 
of their experiences with pot. And Louisa May Alcott had written a short story called A Perilous Play about people who take hashish. And she also had another novel called A Modern Mephistopheles, where she describes in pretty pretty detailed what it's like, you know, she came of them a swiftest step with an air of excitement, you know, because she had done hashish and... And, uh, and, you know, this was big to me because my first book that I ever owned was Little Women, you know, and it's like, wow, Louisa May Alcott. So uh, then I started really looking back into like the ancient goddesses and things and their connections with cannabis. Like there's a goddess Seshat in, in Egyptian lore that's always depicted with this five pointed leaf in her headdress. And she was the one who would stretch the rope when they would build the pyramids and started formulating where my thesis basically of this book is that as we, you know, put women down in this culture and, and you know, in favor of the patriarchy, we also put down the, the plant teachers and the herbs and the medicines that they used. And one uh, person that I've written about is Simone de Beauvoir, who wrote The Second Sex, which was a very huge 800-page feminist treaty in the 40s. And she was Another great moment in hemp history, weed history, she just, we just passed the 75th anniversary of her coming to America on a lecture tour where she toured, we, she spoke at Vassar and Smith and all the big women colleges as well as Harvard and Yale. I mean, she was this huge thinker. But she felt like hanging out in Harlem with, you know, black writers and she was really studying the, the black rights movement. And she went to see a Louis Armstrong concert with Bernard Wolfe, who co-wrote this book called Really the Blues with Mez Mesro, who was Louis Armstrong's pot dealer. He was a Jewish guy, a clarinetist. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. You've read it, I'm sure. And so she uh, went to a marijuana smoking party one night and wrote about it in this book, America Day by Day. She claimed not to have any response to it when she tried it. But then she says for the next few days, she was kind of in a haze. Maybe the marijuana got into my blood. I don't know. And the next thing you knew, she went back to France and she wrote The Second Sex. And everyone was asking her, how come you didn't have these revelations before about the condition of women and everything? And she's like, hey, I really don't know. And it's like, no, I think I know. <laughs> Why? Uh, I can also trace Picasso's uh, development of cubism to a night that he did cannabis, which was recorded by his lover at the time. She painted a painting about it uh, called Les Amites, The Invited Ones. And she, I think, was the one who invited them all to um, to try the hashish. And that's that's been recorded actually in Ariana Huffington's um, biography of Picasso. So, wow, you know, I start thinking, well, really, a lot of the advancements in, in our civilization, kind of like Terence McKenna's theory about, you know, food of the gods, that these were evolutionary leaps, you know, when we were able to use these plant teachers properly and in ways that opened our consciousness. So Simone de Beauvoir uh, writes, okay, I have a quote from her. All of the witch hunts were basically a way to keep, for men, to keep women away from the medicine, herbs, that she used and the power they conferred. So kind of in no uncertain terms. And this is a woman who studied, her book is described as the history of the folklore, customs, laws, history, religion, philosophy, anthropology, literature, and economic systems of men and women. She delved into all of that, and that was her conclusion. Uh, and, you know, there's others who have 
concluded something similar. So now they're going back and started looking at some of these anthropological digs. They finally did uh, uh, took a sample from this this dual altar that was found in ancient Israel to see what what kind of incense they were burning on it. And the bigger one had frankincense, but the smaller one had cannabis. So we're starting to get anthropological proof as well as mythological proof. Because yes, like hemp, and this is what really got me too, I was like, I've been lied to? I've been lied to about this plant? This history has been kept from me? And and the same with women, you know, the women's history or history has been kept from us too, and they intertwine. Absolutely. And just one, uh, you know, we also have to be uh, honest about, you know, the potential harms of cannabis. Very long subtitles is <laughs> has been uh, linked to cannabis use. Thank you. <laughs> and... Um, all right, I should just thank you. Good night. You know, of course, I guess the last sort of great and maybe not so great moment in California modern weed history mm. is the adult use legalization of the plant. So, Ellen, maybe we can wrap this up with what are the parts of that that you love? <laughs> what are the great moments within that great moment for you? Well, that was another part I didn't go to because that was the night Trump was elected. And so I don't know how you feel about Trump, but I was not ready to party that night. You're right about fewer people being arrested. Yes, it was legalized. It would have been very bad if it hadn't passed. That would have been a real step backwards. And there were we knew right away there were a lot of things that needed to be fixed. And one reason I didn't go out and party that night, I knew my phone would ring all the next day with people saying, I'm drug tested on my job. Can I smoke pot now? And I had to say no. We still have to fight that battle because the people who ultimately wrote that initiative, for the most part, put pandered to employers and it said right in the initiative that they could continue to discriminate against people. So a great moment for me was last year when we actually passed the law that changed that, that uh, ended discrimination, at least based on hair and urine testing which only tests for inactive metabolites and tell whether you smoked it days or weeks before. And I've talked to so many people over the years who have lost their jobs, their careers, and all kinds of things because they tested positive. Um, also, another law we passed was to end discrimination by pain doctors for patients because when you get, you know, sign up for opiates, you need opiates or something, you have to sign these pain contracts and they piss test you. And if you show up with cannabis, they often cut you off right away from it. And so those, it, it, so it took many years after Prop 64 for me to have my great moment. I mean, that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't passed legalization. Um, and, you know, from a human rights perspective, and that's mostly what I am as a human rights activist at Normal. Also, you know, we're for small farmers and the right to earn a living and all of that. Yeah, uh, Prop 64... Actually, I wasn't even sure till the week before if I was going to vote for Prop 64, and I went to uh, a museum cafe and and ordered some food, and the woman says to me, don't forget your number, and she hands it to me, and it was 64. And I said, okay, I guess I'm voting for it. <laughs> I mean, that's what it came down to for me, because there were a lot of parts of it that we were very concerned about. And it wasn't even local control so much because they already had local control. I mean, you know, you can make something legal at a state level, but where are you going to put it locally? Zoning. I mean, I had seen already what was happening. I also knew that the feds were continuing to mess with us under the co-op system. 
you know, that, that we had established in SB 420. It wasn't in Prop 215, which was just a one-page law, and I thought my job was over when that passed. But, oh, no, our government, Dan Lundgren, then the AG, went around to cities and counties to, you know, get prosecutors to continue to enforce whatever they could. Um, there was a lot of denial about the science about it. There was just a, a lot of misinformation coming from our government about it. And so, you know, Prop 215 was like our baby. I couldn't, I couldn't abandon it then. You know, it was in trouble. So we had to keep working, redoubling our efforts. And, you know, there was no money for any of that. Like all the money went just to getting it passed and everything. And uh, so it was fighting it city by city, county by county, and at the state level too. And we weren't even on the page with a lot of bills. I mean, we would have like two or three bills maybe that we got introduced. And now there's like 40 or 60 bills every year that we have to track. It's become that much more complicated. But at least, you know, in some senses, we're making progress. If the message that went out was California voted not to legalize cannabis, that would have set the rest of the world back, not years, but decades. And so, you know, you have to add up your victories along with the times we're taking it on the chin. You know, uh, warts and all, we have so, so much to be proud of. I would love for you to all give Ellen and all of our activists a huge round of applause. Thank you so much for coming out for Great Moments in Weed History Live. I've got some stickers if anybody wants one. I'm happy to talk to anybody after the show about anything. Some suggested topics are, I would love to sponsor this podcast. Here's some beautiful weed that I grew. <laughs> or, uh, you know, your pick. So please enjoy the rest of this incredible event. Thank you once again so much to Hua and to everybody from Meadow. Uh, for inviting me here to share this story. And again, thank you, Ellen, for joining me today and for thank all you. that you do. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.